Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Spencer Wells, uh, the geneticist, author, entrepreneur. Name do well. Name do well. <laughs> you know, uh, so a few years ago, there was there was the the series of uh, beer ads about uh, the most interesting man in the world, and um, <laughs> what what many people may not realize is that those ads were actually there. They were based on a real person, and that person was Spencer Wells. Uh, <laughs> uh, God. Okay. Maybe I'll maybe take that as a compliment, Josiah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do take it as a compliment. In fact, I, the, the other day, I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and I mentioned that I knew someone you know, who had that kind of background. And he, this person who I don't believe you know, he correctly identified you just from that description. So- Maybe you could uh, give a little bit, you know, a little, a brief summary of your uh, CV, because you've you've worn a lot of hats over the course of uh, the years. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, um, which is a few miles to the west of y'all, and um, went to Lubbock High School and went to the University of Texas as an undergrad, studied molecular biology. Um, and graduated at a relatively young age and went off to Harvard to get a PhD in population genetics and um, then went out to Stanford as a postdoc, Oxford as a um, research fellow, ran a research group there and, you know, have really spent my career since the mid-90s studying human migration patterns. So, you know, where did our species originate in the world and how did we migrate to the far-flung corners of the earth from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego and so on. And um, yeah, so I've, you know, done a lot of expeditions to very interesting places. I spent the early part of my professional career as a population geneticist working in Central Asia. And I've probably spent about a year of my life living and working in places like the Republic of Georgia and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, and, you know, in, in part, like, listen, when, when I started out in the field, you know, genetics was a totally different business. It was a different game. Um, DNA sequencing had just been invented a few years before I started my undergraduate degree in 1985. And, you know, Wally Gilbert and Fred Sanger won the Nobel Prize for it. It was such a big deal. And so literally I was kind of getting in on the ground floor and it's just exploded with the human genome project and so on. And I've been very lucky to be able to practice my craft during that time and to be able to apply these very modern technologies to the study of human diversity, which is, you know, a big topic. You know, everybody has theories about you know, phenotypic variation, whether it's, you know, intelligence or skin color or eye shape or whatever. But, you know, really these come down to genetic questions that can be answered using the tools of science with the new technology that's been developed in the last couple of decades. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I went out and collected a lot of DNA samples throughout Central Asia, um, which are currently sitting in a freezer in Austin, Texas. 
Um, and in part because of those audacious expeditions, you know, one of which in 1998, we drove from London to Mongolia via the Caucasus and Iran and all the Stans in Central Asia, um, sponsored by Land Rover, I kind of came under the radar of National Geographic and, you know, kind of wading through a lot of the details, ended up um, as what they call an explorer in residence at Nat Geo, um, starting in 2005 and launched a project. So founded, lined up, you know, tens of millions of dollars of funding for it with IBM and the Waite Family Foundation um, and launched that in 2005 and led the genographic project for over a decade with National Geographic, which was really fun experience. I mean, it's it's kind of a funny title, Explorer in Residence. When Jane Goodall was made one of the first Explorers in Residence a few years before I became one, she said, it's so preposterous. An Explorer should never be in residence, um, which I, I think is certainly true. But um, in my case, you know, we were headquartered in D.C. at National Geographic headquarters. But, you know, I was on the road like 80 percent of the time visiting field sites around the world, collecting DNA samples, places like Chad and, you know, Philippines and, and other places, um, but also visiting our research centers. We had 12 of them set up all over the globe. So it was a, it was a massive effort. And, you know, one of the things that came out of that is, you know, when we were designing the project, we wanted to offer members of the general public to, you know, the opportunity to explore their own genetic story, you know, to become part of this database we were building that gives us an insight into who we all are and where we all came from, but also to find out something personal. And, you know, you could swab your cheek and send it off to a lab and get the results back on a cool website with storytelling and all of that. And so that kind of launched the consumer genomics industry. So if you've done 23andMe or Ancestry, we kicked that all off back in 2005 um, through the Genographic Project. So I led that um, from 2005 to 2015, left National Geographic in 2015. You know, 10 years is a long time to be anywhere um, career-wise these days. And I had, you know, aspirations of being an entrepreneur. Um, toward the last couple of years, uh, I was at National Geographic. I ended up acquiring a nightclub in Austin, Texas called Antones, um, classic blues club, which has been in business for over 45 years. A very, a very famous storied uh, establishment. People in Austin will know it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, you know, it was an opportunity to preserve something really important in musical history, but also it was something very culturally important to the city of Austin, which is changing so rapidly. I mean, it's the most rapidly growing large metropolitan area in the, the country. Um, and, you know, I've always been a music fan and I, you know, play guitar badly, but, you know, certainly appreciate musicians who can play better than I do. But anyway, I wanted to found, you know, some companies. I had some ideas that I couldn't pursue with National Geographic and ended up founding a dog DNA testing company, co-founding with um, business partners from Cornell Veterinary School. So that's Embark. Um, embark veterinary so you know they're probably the the most esteemed dog dna testing company in in the world right now they've partnered with westminster kennel club among others and cornell veterinary school and so you know embark's doing quite well and then have the opportunity to start my own um dna testing company which was really built around storytelling i mean to me what I've always wanted to do in my career and what I've certainly, you know, 
striven to do is to not simply tell people what their genetic results are. This is not just a you know kind of chart or a table that you print out and send to somebody as a PDF. It, it's really a question of interpreting the results and, and you know helping people to understand the context. And so Insightome um, was the company I founded in Austin in 2016 that was really based around storytelling. Um, storytelling and immersive kind of user experience, um, you know, in terms of the genetic apps and so on. But it's, you know, it's really that storytelling that has always driven me. And I've written books and made documentary films and all that other stuff. So, you know, storytelling is kind of my bread and butter. And so, you know, Insightome has been going for the last four years. We are winding down this year. And um, this may be one of the first public places where I've made this known, but um, we've converted to a 501c3 nonprofit think tank slash, you know, institute um, called the Insightome Institute. And we have our website up and running now, which is not available to the public, but, you know, we've got one in staging and we're tweaking the final content. We're going to be announcing the next couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, basically, um, we, we are, you know, helping people understand what their genetic results mean. And what we do really is kind of explain the intersection of genetics and society. Genetics is changing so quickly. I mean, we hear these stories about, you know, Hu Zhongkui and in China, like crispering babies. And, you know, we hear about, you know, the FBI subpoenaing access to you know, huge DNA databases that were not intended to be used for law enforcement purposes. You know, genetics suddenly is very much in the news, you know, in a way that it, it never was before. It was always just an academic exercise. So, um, you know, I think there is a need for an entity, um, a nonprofit entity in this case, to help people kind of find their way in this brave new world we've created very, very rapidly um, during the course of my career. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where I am. All right. And, you know, there are so we have had um, uh, collaborator, co-host uh, Razib Khan, our director on, of scientific content at the Insight Institute. Institute. Yes. Uh, so he, he's been on to talk about uh, CRISPR and, and some of the genetic privacy issues. There's a lot of issues today. Of course, we want to talk about topic A. Uh, the thing that everybody's talking about, which is coronavirus and what's going on with that. Um, I, I, I do. When the Major League Baseball season was going to restart. Well, they're, they, they, might <laughs> they, they might be connected. They might be connected. It might have some thoughts on that, too. But um, say I, I was I was all optimistic that we're about to have a baseball season until Blake Snell and some others popped off about how that they thought it was unsafe and they wouldn't pay. They wouldn't play for a dollar less than their normal contracts. Like, well, I think there it goes. I don't think we're going to have a, have a season. <laughs> we live in interesting times. <laughs> so I, I do want to talk about all that, but uh, before I, I did also want to just mention that you are uh, your quarantine plan is a, is a little bit unusual as well. So, uh, where are you located right now? <laughs> where am I located? Um, where do you think I'm located? We can ask the listeners. It would be fun to do a poll. Um, yeah, I we we are in Lombok. My wife and I are in Lombok, Indonesia, which is the island to the east of Bali, just across what's known as Wallace's Line, a biogeographical um, entity that really divides the fauna of uh, uh, Australia to the east, 
from the fauna of Asia to the West. Um, we're in this transitional zone called Wallacea, which is very important if you've studied evolutionary biology because Alfred Russell Wallace famously came up with his version of the theory of evolution by natural selection while he was studying the fauna of this region. So it's, you know, it's kind of appropriate that somebody who got a PhD in evolutionary genetics is, you know, now sitting here in a house where literally I can look out the window I'm looking through now. It's nighttime where I am, so I can't see it at the moment. But, you know, I can look out the kitchen window and see um, Wallace's line. It's, it's kind of cool. And, you know, this is not because my wife and I were sitting at home in Austin um, a couple of months ago and we're like, you know what we need to do? We need to fly to Indonesia to sit out this quarantine. Um, we, we started a travel business um, a little over a year ago. So one of the amazing you know, perks of being at National Geographic as an explorer in residence is that you are invited to contribute to the travel programs they have. And you know, I'm sure that many of your listeners get these you know, beautifully illustrated brochures of Nat Geo expeditions around the world that you can go on. And what my bread and butter was for them was really because you know, we, the work I do has kind of a global scale to it, was you know, these massive private jet trips where you, know, you would retrace the journey of humans around the planet and get to meet some of the people who you know, gave us the genetic clues and you know, experience the cultures and all of that. So I, I designed and led nine of those for Nat Geo when I was there. And listen, I mean, the first time you go on one of these trips, they're, they're in, you know, super deluxe 757s, 80-ish passengers, you know, staff that's dedicated to this, um, you know, that are looking after your every need. I mean, they're very, very luxurious. But after you've been on a couple of them, you know, especially if you're leading them and you're, you know, giving lectures and meeting with people and talking to people all the time and serving as a host, um, they start to feel like very, very nice bus trips because there's so many people. And so one of the things that, you know, I had wanted to do for a long time was organize smaller trips. And, you know, with the, the overhead at a place like National Geographic, those don't make financial sense. But as a smaller company, as kind of a boutique travel company, um, you can make that work. And so my wife and I founded a um, private jet tour company called Shambhala Expeditions um, about a year ago. And we were leading our first trip through Indonesia. Um, we started off in Singapore. Um, she and I flew over via LAX, which was a crazy weird experience given that we knew that the pandemic was spreading worldwide and people were literally not paying attention to anything. And sneezing into their hands and taking our passports and, and so on. Um, so we flew over to Singapore in February 27th and, you know, spent about a week kind of getting the lay of the land and having meetings and getting ready for the, the guests. And we launched the trip on March 6th, which, you know, was an interesting time to be taking very well-heeled guests who had paid a large sum of money to, you know, Asia to Southeast Asia, because of course, you know, everybody had been hearing about the, the Wuhan flu, this Asian virus. And, you know, I, I had been tracking this for a while because I've got a, you know, a background in virology. I studied virology and immunology as an undergraduate, um, worked in a virology lab, actually in a mouse model for HIV um, way back in the eighties when, you know, everybody was hopeful that we were going to be able to develop a vaccine soon and, and so on. 
Um, so I'd always been interested in, in viruses and viral evolution um, and, you know, really got interested in zoonotic diseases when I read Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, when it came out in 1994. Um, so, you know, I'd been tracking this thing since January because it, you know, had potentially an impact on our business. And luckily, none of our, our guests chose to um, cancel the trip. And, you know, it was a good choice because we had an awesome time. And it was completely safe, and everybody had a wonderful, you know, trip. And you know, we we left from Singapore on March the seventh um, after touring around and going to the Asian, you know, history museum and all these other amazing things that you can do and see in Singapore. Eating the you know hawker food, and we you know took this route through Jakarta and Jogjakarta and Borneo to see orangutans, and we went to Flores to see the cave with a famous hobbit, Homo floresiensis, was found, and um, we went to Komodo to see the dragons. And when we were up in the highlands of Sulawesi, in um, you know this, this place called Tana Taraja, where people are nominally Christian, but basically are still animist, and they, you know, gouge out these holes and cliff faces about 50 feet up, and then, you know, bury the mummified bodies of their, their dead relatives there. Um, with wooden effigies in front of them. It's fascinating pre-Christian animist culture thing. Um, we got, you know, I, I've been monitoring, of course, the news along the way. Singapore shut down its borders. And so, you know, that, that was our out on the trip, is that we were going to, after Sulawesi, go to a resort um, which specializes in, in scuba diving and snorkeling on Moyo Island, um, you know, and then ended up in Bali, in Ubud, the cultural capital, and then head back to Singapore, and people were going to fly out from there. And suddenly that was off the table, um, you know, unless people wanted to go into a 14-day quarantine, which, of course, no one wanted to do. So we decided we needed to cut the trip short. Everybody, they were all American guests, everybody wanted to get back to the States. Um, they were worried about family and friends. So we rerouted the private jet to Denpasar, which is the major airport on Bali that has a lot of international flights. We rebooked their tickets um, on Emirates back to the States via Dubai. And my wife and I were suddenly in the position of, okay, you know, this has been really intense. Um, it's our first trip. We did a great job. Everybody's happy. They made it home safely, healthy. Nobody was infected with coronavirus. Um, you know, so high five on that. But what about us? I mean, like we were reading news reports about the border, you know, inspection points, customs in the U.S., people waiting in line with no masks on for six to eight hours to get through. And we're like, we don't really want to go back to the U.S. right now. Like they don't seem to be on top of this. And we don't want to spend 14 days sitting in an expensive hotel room in Singapore, not being able to go out, you know, in quarantine. And we've got this, you know, credit with this wonderful resort on a remote island, Moyo Island, um, which is just off the coast of Sumbawa, just east of us right now. And so we were like, let's let's head to Moyo. You know, what better place to sit out a pandemic than a remote, small, relatively uninhabited island in, you know, Indonesia. And so that's kind of how we ended up staying here. Um, we have since moved from that tiny island to a much larger island, as I said, Lombok, um, where we have a walled compound and, you know, 
It's it's been very very safe, and the Indonesians have done a great job of you know social distancing, wearing masks, shutting things down whenever there are reported cases. No people come in or out of a you know a metropolitan area once they they've detected these things, at least in the smaller regions. Um, but yeah, I mean we've been living here now for a month and a half, and it's it's awesome. I got to say, you know, life is relatively normal here. I heard from a neighbor today that last night they shut down all of the major shopping malls in the large city um, to the south of us. Mataram is about 20 minutes away to the south. And, you know, it's a city of 400,000 people. So it's, you know, it's non-trivial in terms of size. There are a lot of people there, a lot of people moving around. Um, it's Ramadan right now. And so what happens during Ramadan is that, you know, the, the Muslims who observe it, basically, you know, they get up at like four or five in the morning to eat their meal and drink as much liquid as they can because it's really hot here. We're in the tropics. And they're not allowed to, you know, touch food or water for the rest of the, the time that the sun is up. And then when the sun goes down, like it's a party. Like they have the iftar, which is their breaking fast meal. And, you know, a lot of people were starting to head back to the shopping malls and not practicing social distancing. And, you know, some weren't even wearing masks, which is highly unusual here. So the governor shut down every single shopping mall last night. So we're starting to see a little bit of the kind of lockdown that is happening in other parts of the world. But, you know, in terms of other things, we can still hop on our scooters and drive to the beach and go snorkeling. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty nice. It's as, as places to sit out a pandemic go, um, it's, it's pretty awesome. All right. So let's turn from the cheery part of the program to something a little bit bleaker. So we seem to be um, in a transitional phase in terms of the virus where you've had uh, big outbreaks in a bunch of countries, uh, mostly developed countries, oddly enough, although not all only there. And well, we can talk about why that isn't odd. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I am interested in I am interested in that because there there I feel like in some way you know this has been going on for months and people have really been looking into it and in in some ways I feel like we know more in some ways the virus seems more mysterious now than it did even a couple months ago but um, it's nothing to cry about Josiah <laughs> yeah that's right yeah yeah uh, a little little my son there in the background um, so what what is your sense of where we're at in terms of the outbreak? Where are we at? Um, so I was, the last time I looked at the, um, the Hopkins dashboard was a few hours ago. The numbers have, you know, gone up significantly since then. But we had just passed 5 million people, confirmed cases worldwide. Um, you know, that's an underestimate. Obviously, it, it depends on testing. Um, U.S., I think, was at around 1.5, 1.6 million. So, you know, 4.2% of the world's population, a third of the confirmed cases, U.S. not doing well in this at all. Um, and so, you know, where we're at is that we're at the, not, not the end <laughs> of the pandemic by any means, and not the beginning of the end, but as Winston Churchill might have remarked, the end of the beginning um, you know, the U.S. has come out from under its, you know, pretty lax, in my opinion, lockdown, you know, certainly compared to what Asian countries have undertaken. Um, 
and every state has reopened now, I believe as of Monday. Um, certainly, you know, our home state of Texas reopened on Monday with some restrictions, but basically you can, you know, go to a tanning salon and go to a hair salon and go to a nightclub. Um, you know, where we stand right now is that we are in the calm before the storm. Um, if you look at the pattern of infections in the 1918 flu pandemic, there was a first wave, which was really scary. And everybody, you know, ran inside and want, wanted to avoid social contact. They didn't do a very good job of it, you know, like most people in the U.S. today are not doing a very good job of it. People are out protesting without masks in front of state houses and so on. But, you know, most people who were relatively intelligent were pretty careful. And then, you know, as we know, like there are intense economic pressures to reopen an economy that's been shut down like that. And I, I certainly understand that, you know, especially as the co-owner of a music venue, you know, music venues are all about people coming together and tightly packed enclosed spaces and, you know, watching live music and having fun. But, you know, that's the perfect way to transmit this virus. So, you know, those were among the first places in, in Austin to, to shut down. And, you know, I was very vocal back at the beginning of March about needing to cancel South by, and I'm very pleased they, they did. Um, you know, the, the issue right now is in the 1918 pandemic, people came out from under that initial lockdown and you had essentially infected a lot of people who had minimal symptoms. And when they came out from under lockdown, there was kind of a free for all, which I see on the news is happening in the States as well um, right now. And the second wave, which came very quickly on the heels of the first, was significantly worse, far more infections, far more deaths. And that's what we're looking at in the U.S. Um, you know, everything's reopening. Um, we're headed into the Northern Hemisphere summer season in a hot place like Texas. And everybody's used to sitting in offices with, you know, very cold air conditioning on. And, you know, that air is recirculating. And so, you know, you're sitting there in one of these, you know, tech company offices with 70 people packed into a 400 square foot space or whatever it might be, because you're trying to be a lean startup. And they're all rebreathing each other's air. And we now know that, you know, this virus is aerosolized and it can stick around for as much as 45 minutes in air when somebody's just talking. They're not, they don't even have to cough. I mean, they're just talking and, you know, the little viral particles stick around as infectious agents for, you know, nearly an hour. And that gets recirculated through the air conditioning system. And so everybody's exposed to it. Um, what's going to happen is that, we're going to, in the same way we saw in the 1918 flu pandemic, see a huge number of infections in a few weeks. Um, you know, so we're going to start to notice them in about two to three weeks. Um, you know, it's the 21st there, I think, of May. Um, so I would say by around June 10th, people are really going to, like, you can't ignore it at that point. Like, it's it, it's going to be clear from people checking into hospitals and needing respirators that, you know, there is a second wave going on. It's going to have to get really bad because the U.S. did not like the first lockdown, and it is going to get really bad. So I predict it's going to be July or so, possibly 
August. I hope not. But, you know, before the government declares a real shutdown. And that's when the fun starts, um, so to speak. <laughs> so so you've, you've just said something that I've, I've seen other people take a different position, or at least you said something uh, sort of rather casually that seems contrary to what I've been seeing is the idea that this is uh, that it's airborne now and that it's going through the air conditioning. And I've seen people speculate about that months ago, but I don't think that's the, is, is that becoming a sort of the, the consensus opinion that it is now going through the air conditioning? And, and if so, what does that say about the lockdown when you, particularly when you think about, uh, you know, multifamily units, if they're all within some type of central air conditioning, is a lockdown going to actually prevent that? prevent the transmission yeah it's it's a big worry i mean um yeah this is new information that's been published in the last couple of days i've tweeted about it i can send you guys the link um yeah i mean they're they're the chinese have actually done a spectacular job of scientifically investigating the root causes of how these things are being spread in the community and i know that there's a lot of negativity about china in the u.s now but you know, the, the science that's coming out is being borne out in studies by the Japanese and the Koreans and European countries as well. So I, I think it's pretty valid. Yeah, I mean, they've got cases where, you know, there's a woman who goes into a restaurant who's asymptomatic and, you know, she leaves the restaurant and they were practicing social distancing, but people sitting all the way across the room from her who happened to be sitting in the same enclosed air-conditioned space became infected. And, you know, this is we now know that the virus can be aerosolized. So it's not just a question of you coughing out droplets that have to stick to a surface or land on somebody's eyeball. And you can be infected through your eyes now, by the way, um, because there are ACE2 or ACE2 um, receptors expressed on eye tissue. Um, It's not just a question of, you know, being coughed on or or droplets landing on the right surfaces on your body. Literally, those droplets can evaporate and the virus can float around for 45 minutes to an hour in the right environment. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big issue. HVAC systems in large buildings are designed to minimize energy expenditure and they share air among a lot of different rooms. And, you know, airplanes are the same way. And it's it's super scary. Um, You know, I. I don't know. I mean, if it were me, I would not be going back to an office this summer. <laughs> Absolutely not. So, okay. So I, I think I had seen the story about that restaurant um, maybe a, a few weeks ago, and it's possible there was a story about a different restaurant. But I guess my question there is, it, do, we, do we know in that case or in other cases if the uh, you know, if the respiratory drops actually went through the HVAC system or if they simply were sort of downwind events, uh, because obviously if it's actually going through the HVAC system, that's a far scarier idea. Well, why do you think that cruise ships and Navy ships have been essentially Petri dishes for the spread of this? It's because it's spreading through the, the you know, air ventilation system. Um you know, it, it makes sense. This this is a virus that, you know, is pretty tough, it, you know, unless you expose it to certain things. And, you know, I was actually hesitant at the beginning to believe that, you know, heat and humidity 
were playing a major role in this. But, you know, I am convinced by that data that was discussed at one of the presidential briefings a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it's part of the reason why the situation in the wet tropics, certainly here in Southeast Asia, has been, you know, relatively benign. You know, we don't have that many cases. Like Vietnam has done swimmingly. And I would have guessed at the very outset of this, back in January when I was started following this, and was like, oh my God, Vietnam shares a border with China. It's a poor country. It's in the tropics. Like people are living on top of each other. Like it's going to be slammed. Vietnam has done so well in this, far better than Singapore, which is the richest country in Southeast Asia. But people live like they do in Europe and especially in America in these highly air conditioned buildings. They've got, you know, guest workers who have spread the virus through. Um, these densely packed guest worker dormitories. And, you know, Singapore, I actually wrote an article about this for MIT Tech Review beginning in March. I'm like, Singapore is, you know, the, the shining flagship of how we should be dealing with this pandemic. And they were at the time, but they have this Achilles heel. And that is rich countries in Asia don't like to do the manual labor themselves. And so they've got all these guest workers they import. That happens in the Emirates as well, another kind of city-state, quasi-city-state. Um, you know, and that's that's really been what has made Singapore the worst-hit country in Southeast Asia now in terms of infections and the rising number of deaths. And Vietnam and, you know, Thailand have done, you know, amazingly well. And I think it's because, in part... In those places that are relatively poor and agrarian, people live this kind of indoor-outdoor life. I mean, you know, we have a house in Indonesia right now where we have air conditioning in the bedrooms. And, you know, I don't sleep in the air conditioning every night um, because we get a breeze because the building's designed a really nice way to catch the cross breezes. But, you know, during the day, we've got fans on, we've got, you know, air blowing through. It's, you know, essentially at outside temperatures. You know, that's the norm in this part of the world. And and so, you know, for that reason, I've, I've kind of, you know, semi-jokingly called this the revenge of the peasants. It's like poorer agrarian societies in the tropics are doing better than the rich Western societies. Much better. And, you know, that's... That's a bit, that was certainly unexpected for me at the outset of this. So sort of a question, question on that. Um, if you were, let's just say that you were back in the United States and you were in New York City or some other place where you were living in a multifamily unit, maybe a sky rise or something like this, what would you do? I mean, it seems like one side of this is probably spend more time outside, but to the extent that you're inside even in your own apartment, should you be wearing a mask then? Do we have this all backwards? Um, is there anything that, as a practical matter, is there anything that somebody that lives in a multifamily unit should be doing or could be doing? It, it depends on the HVAC system, quite frankly. I mean, most buildings in the States, you know, as far as I know, certainly, you know, well-maintained buildings that have been updated and, and so on, you know, do not have a centralized HVAC system. You, you can control the, the temperature in your own unit, which means you have your own unit that is drawing air from outside and you're recirculating your own air. And so, you know, I wouldn't think that there would be any higher risk there. 
But, you know, offices are different and offices are built for efficiency and to minimize costs and, and, you know, maximize the amount of space where you can pack people into. Um, I would not be working in an office, um, certainly an air conditioned office in the United States this summer. I mean, if you can avoid that in any way possible, please do. So uh, one of the things that I like about you, Spencer, and your commentary on the coronavirus is that you're never afraid to offer a, uh, uh, however, however bad I think things can get, you're always, you're always there to go, uh, above and beyond. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. So I think most people, when they think about what is the, what is the end game for the pandemic, they have one of two ideas in mind. One is, uh, you know, we survive until we get a vaccine and then that solves it. And then there are other folks who think, well, that's not re- realistic. And so we just basically are going to end up one way or the other with enough people being infected to get to herd immunity. And you, I know, at various points have suggested that it's possible that neither of those things will happen. <laughs> That it's it, that either an effective vaccine, uh, you know, there may never be an effective vaccine, and uh, we may never be able to reach herd immunity, uh, at least, you know, beyond a, a very short period of time. So may, you maybe talk about what what you what you mean by that. Yeah. So okay, we're getting into the red pill phase of the the show, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. So let. Let's just talk about what those things mean. Vaccine. Um, The fastest vaccine that's ever been developed in history um, was for mumps in the 1950s. And that took four years. And that was a huge concerted effort. Um, We have been spending billions of dollars for two generations to try and develop a vaccine for HIV. Hasn't happened. We've been spending billions of dollars for nearly that long to try and develop an, a vaccine for hepatitis C. Hasn't happened. Malaria, same situation. Um, you know, vaccines are hard to develop. It's, I think everybody, because vaccines have become so easy, like you, you have a child and, you know, I've got two daughters. You take them to the doctor, you know, after they're a few months old and they get their first vaccines and then they go back for boosters and, you know, it's just an accepted part of life. It's like vaccines are easy. You know, nobody catches measles anymore unless you live in California um, and you're an anti-vaxxer. But, you know, vaccines have become accepted and expected. You know, it's like vaccines are easy. Vaccines are really, really difficult. Um, you know, most people don't know how the flu vaccine is, is developed every year and why they need to get boosters. Um, the flu vaccine... Flu is, it's a virus that does, of course, mutate, but more importantly, it has a segmented genome, so the recombination rate is incredibly high, particularly among the the components that code for the hemagglutinin and neuraminidase, and that's where you get the H and the N and these virus, you know, designations, so H1N1, H5N1, those are, you know, subtypes of, of hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And it's because they're encoded in different segments of the genome and they recombine and you'll be infected by multiple strains or, a you know, a duck will or a chicken or whatever, you know, avian flu. 
um, and pass it on to humans. But, you know, trying to guess at what the strains will be next year is one of the things that the WHO does. You know, it's one of the reasons that, you know, smart countries actually pay those fees to the WHO to be a part of. And they sit down in Geneva every year and they look at the strains that have been circulating in the current season. And um, they guess at the strains that might still be circulating the following year because it takes eight to 10 months to ramp up production of enough vaccine doses to, you know, give some level of protection to older people and people who are immunocompromised um, in, in the developed world. You know, flu vaccines are easy because the system is already built. You know, we, all you have to do is essentially designate what the antigens are going to be. And then the factories go into production. That's not the case here. You know, the science is unknown. So we're, we're developing the science on the fly. Um, that science has to be tested in human subjects. Um, you know, otherwise you run the risk of, you know, in the United States, major lawsuits, you know, kids start to die from getting a vaccine that isn't quite right. Imagine the outcry about that. Um, you know, so you gotta be really, really careful about testing these things and make sure they're safe. Um, and then you've got to scale up production and, you know, instead of, you know, producing 50 million doses of a flu vaccine, you know, I, I don't even know how many people get the flu vaccine in the U S every year, but it's, it's certainly not the entire population. It's some small fraction. Um, you know, you're talking about vaccinating 330 million people and that scaling that up is non-trivial. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who has taken an academic genetic testing methodology when we launched Genographic and scaled it up to deal with hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in the general public sending in consumer tests every year. And now, of course, millions of people. So, you know, I get how you do that. And it's it's non-trivial. Like, it's it's tough. And, and I couldn't even imagine scaling up an experimental vaccine from zero to 330 million. And then you think about doing that worldwide. And, you know, so there ain't going to be a vaccine in the next six months. There isn't going to be one in the next year. There might be one in 18 months. You know, I think that the best case scenario is that there is a scalable initial vaccine 12 to 18 months out that most people will have access to. I mean, frontline healthcare workers, yes, there may be something experimental that, you know, those small number of people are able to get in six months. But, you know, you and I are not going to be able to go into our doctor's office and ask for that vaccine, believe me, um, in six months. So that's, you know, we're at least a year out from that. And so that means that that's, that's not a short-term solution because, you know, you look at those infection rates and the numbers are growing by the day by you know, tens of thousands and the deaths are growing by the thousands. And, you know, we need a faster solution. And so what is the solution? Well, you know, we had one shot. Um, the countries around the world and New Zealand, I think, has done literally the best job of any country. Now, it has some geographic features that, of course, made it a little bit easier because it's I've been there a couple of times. It's really remote, like it even feels remote when you go there. You know, maybe it's just psychological, but, you know, it's it's in the middle of freaking nowhere and it's an island. Um, but, you know, real shutdowns like they did in, in China. You have that one shot to catch this. And if you don't do that, which the U.S. has not done, and we've decided to reopen all 50 states without doing that, while there's still community transmission going on at a significant level, um, what that means is that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have this huge second wave. 
And, you know, there are only two options that are left to the U.S., given that a vaccine is not going to be forthcoming. Um, one is that we lock down again and, you know, we do a real lockdown. We do a Chinese style lockdown where you have police officers patrolling outside of buildings, making sure people do not leave their apartments. We take away civil liberties, which is anathema in the U.S., but is somewhat more acceptable in Asia, which is why they've done better in part. Um, and, you know, those total lockdowns will cut the spread, the community spread. They, they will work. I mean, if you do not make contact with someone who's infected, you will not catch this. It's not magic. Okay. This is basic science. It's basic disease transmission. And, you know, so what will happen is that the people who have been infected during this relaxation of lockdown um, and who develop the severe symptoms, um, and, you know, there are lots of genetic variants of this virus, lots of strains circulating out there. And this type of virus has a very high recombination rate for an RNA virus. So, you know, it's very good at swapping out, you know, little pieces of this that work well and little pieces of that that work well. And you can be co-infected with multiple strains and, you know, the typical viral genetics that, you know, everybody knows about if you're, you've studied virology. Um, there will be people who are, you know, badly afflicted during that lockdown and they will go to the hospital and they will expose the healthcare workers to the most severe strains, the most deadly strains of the virus. And those healthcare workers, because this is the U.S. and not China, remember in Wuhan, when they did their lockdown, the healthcare workers were not allowed to go home. In the rest of the world, the healthcare workers go home. In some cases in the U.S., they wear their scrubs home and they wash them at home and spread it to their family that way. That's been documented. Um, you know, that's going to be the mode of transmission. And so what you are doing is you're taking literally probably over 10 million potentially different strains of the virus, and you are selecting for the ones that are the most virulent. And they're going to be transmitted to the community via the healthcare workers, okay? It's a very, very simple evolutionary explanation, and, you know, it's, it, it will be borne out if that's the, the route that we take. So that's, that's option one right now for the U.S., because we've relaxed the lockdown. If we had kept the lockdown in place, like that was our one chance, but we decided that we didn't give a fuck, pardon my French. Um, the second option is, okay, we're not going to lock down. We're not going to select for a super strain that will have a mortality rate of 10% and a you know, morbidity rate and hospitalization rate of over 50%, which is what would happen in that first scenario. Second option is um, we're just going to go for herd immunity. Okay. So now we're not selecting for the most virulent strains, but we know that the mortality rate on this is around 1%. So that means 3.3 million Americans are expected to die over the next couple of years. Um, and something like 20 million, 30 million are expected to need ICUs and ventilators and you know all of these other extreme measures to try and preserve their lives which I don't think there are that many ventilators on the planet, um, much less in the U.S. So the options in the U.S. don't look so good right now to me, just thinking through it rationally. Uh, so I do have a, a follow-up. So I wanted to ask about mutation. You, you know, you've alluded to this, um, it, it, that under certain scenarios, the virus would be selected to become more virulent and deadly. 
over time. It's also, of course, possible that the virus could be selected over time to become less deadly. And so I guess the so I, I have two questions. One is what are the what what is the likelihood that we would see the virus evolve towards being uh, less deadly? And is there anything we could do to increase the likelihood of that process? And then a related question has to do with, you know, just it's my understanding that as you get different strains and they evolve away from each other, the immunity that people get either from having had the virus or from having had a vaccine based on an earlier strain may be less protective. And so in which case you could easily end up in a situation where uh, the, the pandemic becomes endemic. You know, it becomes like the flu where it just comes back every year. So how, so those are, those are the two questions. One is, is there anything we can do to try and select for less, you know, less deadly forms of the virus? And B, how likely is it that whether through herd, you know, whether through this painful process of herd immunity or some sort of uh, lightning warp speed vaccine development, that we will be able to actually end this thing? Yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the key questions moving forward. And, you know, it's one that, that we're still trying to understand, but I, I can tell you what we know at the moment. This thing has a 30 um, kilobase genome. It is one of the largest RNA viruses out there. And RNA viruses tend to have a higher mutation rate. This does have a proofreading um, enzyme that allows it to edit out some of the errors, unlike HIV. But it's also got a genome that's more than three times larger than HIV. So there are more lo locations for mutations to hit. So literally, with the numbers of infections we're talking about worldwide, every single nucleotide in this genome has been hit with a mutation. And because the genome is longer and because it's a feature of coronaviruses, as I mentioned before, we do get recombination. And so we're constantly shuffling around literally every single variant. And, you know, this is a really interesting kind of experimental, um, computational evolutionary problem. Like how long would it take to, you know, in a population size of, you know, N individuals with, you know, this number of mutations circulating in a recombination rate of whatever to generate like the killer strain. Um, everybody should assume that the killer strains are already there. Okay, that's the safest thing to assume because there's so many infections, effectively the population size is infinite. And so what that means is that all of your evolutionary simulations become deterministic. There, there is no randomness anymore. Literally every possible variant that could exist, exists. And so then we're talking about selection. Selection acts best in large populations. And so this is a very, very large population. So any selection we apply will result in, you know, a shift in the evolution of the virus. And we've already seen that. So there was a story that came out earlier today um, in northeastern China. They're talking about locking down another 100 million people because, and this is very, very interesting, this is a wily little creature, um, not a living organism technically, but I like to think of it as like a little nasty bug. Um, so 
the strain that seems to have emerged in northeastern China in the last few days um, now takes longer to show symptoms than 14 days. Now, why would that have happened? Hmm, okay. Well, how have we been selecting for people to let back into the community? Oh, it's the people who remain symptom-free for 14 days or longer. And so what you're doing is you've been selecting for those strains of the virus that don't show symptoms for 14 days or longer. And we're seeing that right now. Viral evolution is happening in real time all over the world. We're applying selective pressures everywhere. And this is why, you know, I mentioned that scenario before about like, okay, so imagine like you literally cut community spread, all the like, you know, cases that are nearly asymptomatic or they just have cold-like symptoms and they can deal with it at home. Like you cut those out of the population. The only ones that are transmitting are the really nasty ones that have to go to the hospital. Of course, those are the ones that are going to come to predominate. I mean, evolution's really simple if you just think about the process. We are seeing this happening right now. And, you know, that level of variation also extends to the targets of any vaccine or any antibody therapy that's out there at the moment. This is a moving target. It's the reason why the flu virus, or the, sorry, the flu vaccine, rather, is only 10 to 60% effective in any given year. If the WHO in Geneva, the previous you know, season, does a really good job of guesstimating the, the strains that are going to be circulating, it's 60 to 70% effective. It's you know highly protective. It creates herd immunity if everybody got the vaccine. Of course, most people choose not to, and there are a lot of anti-vaxxers out there who would never even touch a vaccine like that. But sometimes they guess wrong, and it's only about 10 or 20% effective. And, you know, the reason you have to keep being revaccinated is that the virus is changing all the time. And the same thing is going to happen here. And that's why the first round of vaccines, which are still at least a year out, at least a year out, are not going to protect from every single strain that's in circulation, even at the moment. Now, I think there could be as many as a billion people worldwide infected with this thing by the end of the summer. That's just a tremendous amount of viral genetic variation and you can't you can't easily design a vaccine to that i mean it's it, it's a really really difficult combinatorial you know biological problem to you know contemplate like every possible amino acid substitution in the spike protein and all of this other stuff um i mean it, there's no easy fix to this. It's, it's, you know, you get one shot and the U.S. had its shot. And if they had gone into lockdown um, back in, say, early March or the end of February, even better. Um, and we now know that it was probably circulating in the U.S. since late January, even though people weren't detecting it at that point. But if we had done it earlier, you know, we that was our shot. And now we're in a really, really difficult position. And I don't have an easy answer, you know? Um, and there's, there's a reason why I'm living on an island in Indonesia now. Um, you know, I, I, I hope everybody stays safe, but I, I don't have an easy fix for this. Let me bring it back to the genetic side of things. Um, because you know, one of the striking things about the virus has been... Uh, the, the heterogeneity, right? Some areas seem to get hit a lot worse than others. And of course, there's all sorts of reasons why that could be. You mentioned uh, some earlier about the revenge of the peasants and, you know, 
air conditioning, outdoor, indoor lifestyle. There are other, there are other issues. Uh, but my question is, could there be genetic factors that predispose people to be, to get more sick from the virus and other people to be relatively unaffected by it? And if, if so, uh, what can be done to try and identify what those genetic factors or predispositions might be? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I, you know, I was one of the first people to, you know, tweet something about this back in mid-February. I'm like, I hope that the healthcare workers that are treating these patients with, you know, this new coronavirus are taking DNA samples from the humans that are infected as well, because we see so much heterogeneity in outcomes. Um, you know, you can be a 25-year-old you know, triathlete, super fit, you know, watch your diet, you're not overweight, and you can crash and burn in two weeks without explanation. And you can be a 104-year-old Singaporean grandmother, I think she's the oldest person to recover from an infection with the virus, and come through with flying colors. Um, there are significant genetic factors that affect outcomes. We know that, you know, there, there are strain differences in the virus as well. Um, and it's a combination of those kind of think of a matrix where, you know, you've got the strains going you know, across the top and the, you know, human genetic variants going down the side. And like everybody fits somewhere in that matrix in terms of their, their relative risk. It depends on the strain of the virus they're infected with and their particular genetic background. Um, that's the only intelligent way to release from a lockdown is to create what you know, we, we refer to as risk pools. And so what are the risk pools? Well, they're, they're ones that the Greeks could have spotted 2,500 years ago. Old people die. Um, so old people can't come out of lockdown. Obese people, we know this from the New York data quite well, can't come out of lockdown. And the U.S. unfortunately has an obesity rate approaching nearly 50% right now. Um, so, you know, you take those people out, the baby boom generation, really big generation, a lot of Americans, um, obese people, that's a, a lot of people. So you've got a tiny minority of the U.S. workforce that's able to go out and potentially risk it and work safely. Um, and then there are the genetic factors within that, you know, which creates additional granularity within those risk pools among the people that are under 60 and not obese um, and not male, because we know that being male is another risk factor. And ultimately, you get down to a potential safe workforce that's, you know, maybe 15 or 20 percent of what it was before the pandemic. Um, that that doesn't bode well for the economy. Um, you know, those people are lucky because they're going to have jobs, but they're going to be paying, what, 80 percent marginal tax rates to support everybody else. Um, or you just let them die. I mean, it, it's, it's a really tricky social situation. Um, but clearly, yes, there are genetic factors in addition to the known, you know, kind of easy phenotypic factors, age, obesity, sex, um, that play into these risk pools. And assigning people to risk pools, you know, that seem to be outside of those obvious phenotypic risks, um, using these genetic factors will be really important. And there, there are studies that are being done right now at several places. I mean, 23andMe is crowdsourcing this because they have such a huge database of 
people who, you know, tested with them now and the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the UK is doing this. And, you know, there are going to be some results coming out very, very rapidly. And, you know, my prediction would be that we're going to see the obvious, you know, places in the genome where it's going to, you know, make sense, where it's going to be variants in the ACE2 um, receptor, which is what the virus binds to when it infects cells. Um, we're going to see variation in immune system genes like HLA. I suspect there are going to be certain HLA types that are particularly susceptible and others that, you know, basically, if you get infected with it, it doesn't, you know, hurt you at all. Um, you know, probably some of the toll-like receptors and, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but, you know, there are some obvious places where I would start off immediately looking for variation that's, that's correlated with outcomes. But, you know, we're going to have some of that information. And, you know, the smart way of assigning the risk pools, like I said, is to create that matrix. It's like, are you infected? If you are, which strain do you have? And what are your genetic risk factors? Boom. Okay. You need to like go to the hospital now. Like you may be just short of breath and have a slight headache, but like you're going to crash. Um, that's the smart way of dealing with this. But, you know, it, that's that'll come pretty quickly. I, I feel like um, you know, I know of work, I'm privy to certain information, um, you know, that I, I can't really talk about, but you know, that that's being developed and they're essentially waiting for the results of these studies, the GWAS studies to look at, you know, human susceptibility factors in these immune system genes and other places in the genome. Um, you know, th that, that sort of information is going to be available pretty quickly. I would say, you know, if they rush it, it and the FDA approves the test, it should be available by the end of the summer with any luck. Um, you know, and that's the smart way to come out from, from lockdown, um, you know, is to, to really take the science into account. Science has to lead the way in this. And, you know, unfortunately, science has been devalued significantly in U.S. society over the last 10 years or so, um, certainly the last few years under the current administration. Um, you know, it's, it's a remarkable kind of Venn diagram, when you look at people who deny climate change, despite all the evidence for it, and people who, you know, don't want to sit in lockdown um, in, in the COVID pandemic, um, you know, climate change is something where like, okay, that's, that's a risk in the distant future, unless you live on a low lying Pacific Island and, you know, the water levels are rising. <clears throat> And I don't want to get into the politics surrounding that. And, you know, humans are not built to deal with those sorts of long-term existential risks. We're, we're much better at dealing with the kind of existential risks that we're seeing right now with this pandemic. But for some reason, that same anti-scientific thinking is translating to a resistance to wearing masks, you know, using science to make rational policy decisions. And this is what worries me so much about what's going on in the U.S. is that it just it doesn't make any sense. I mean, science is apolitical. It really is like it's just about the freaking facts, man. And, you know, you can choose to, like, believe in your own alternate universe when it comes to something like climate change and, you know, the rate at which we should be proceeding to electric cars and solar power. That's fine. That's a, like a long term thing. But this is like very tangible and very real and a very, very instantaneous kind of existential risk. And I do not understand why people are denying the science and don't want to listen to scientists. Can I, I, want, to, I want to jump in there for just a second, because I, I think that one aspect of this is 
and I'll tell a story. I just had a phone call on Monday with a friend of mine, and we both are very into networking. We know a lot of people in Texas. And between the two of us, I was the only one that knew of anyone who'd actually been infected by COVID. I know of one man in Indiana who died of it in his 90s. And I think when you factor in that, that there's people like us living in a large city in Houston that haven't actually experienced anyone who has it, of course, you know, but but I could I could appoint to several people that I know that have lost their jobs that have been harmed economically. I think then when you factor that in, I think there's people regionally like here in Texas and places like Houston, we're seeing the economic impact. But unlike people in New York, we're not seeing the, you know, the, the public health issue the same way. So, I mean, I think that that's part of it is I know there's a lot of there's a lot of bashing uh, Florida and Georgia and Texas, but our experience is very different. Now, I'm, I'm sure you're probably about to tell me that, well, just wait, because we're about to get it as well. But I think that that's a factor that a lot of people aren't talking about is our response to this is is sort of a personal experiential ex- response of we're seeing one side of this, but we're not seeing the public health issue the same way other people are in, say, the Northeast. Yeah, no, I listen, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's related to that same kind of climate change existential risk. You know, the more distal the, the risks are, the less likely you are to sacrifice things in the present to avoid them. You know, so if you can punt it down to the next generation, you know, and, and keep the tax breaks and keep driving your F-150, then you'll do it. You know, it, it just makes sense for you as an individual. The issue with this is, and this is the general issue with public health more broadly, is that sometimes your individual desires conflict significantly with what is best for the group. And this is part of the reason why I think Asia has done better, is that there is more of a communitarian approach where it's like, okay, the government presents the facts, the scientific facts. They're like, we need to do this in order to save our society and our economy. And people are like, yes, we have to do that, even though it's going to involve some personal you know, sacrifices on my part over the next few weeks or months or you know, possibly years. But it's, it's the best thing to do for me and my family, my children and my community and my country. The U.S. is a nation that is composed of people who very much believe in individual civil liberties. You know, that's what the Second Amendment's all about. People, you know, always protest any, you know, potential infringements on Second Amendment rights. That's about civil liberties at the individual level, because we all know, I mean, the data is there from Australia. Like if you take away assault rifles, you ain't going to get, you know, people coming into schools with assault rifles and killing dozens of kids. But as, you know, civil libertarians, you know, this is part of what America was founded on, and especially, you know, the Western states, you know, frontier mentality, like we don't want to give up those individual civil rights. And that is, you know, anathema to a pandemic response, because public health is about thinking in terms of what is best for the community. And so even if you as an individual have not been personally affected by this, you have to realize that other people are being affected and that your individual decisions play into everyone's outcomes. And so if you're a young person 
say a UT student who charters a jet with some of your friends to go to Mexico for spring break. Cause Hey man, like if I catch it, like I'm a healthy, you know, 21 year old and it doesn't really matter. However, what you do when you come back and you're asymptomatic is you reintroduce it into the community and you kill old people, you know, that kind of thinking is it. That's the way people need to be viewing this. It's about what is good for society. And unfortunately, I just feel like, you know, since the greatest generation, you know, the generation that lived through World War One and the 1918 flu pandemic and the Great Depression and fought off fascism in World War II and built the greatest economy in the history of the world in the 1950s and 1960s. Since that era, for some reason, since the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, like America has become more individualistic and less focused on like, how do we create a better country, a better place for our fellow country people to live in. And, you know, that's the kind of thinking that needs to be restored, in my opinion. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican. Creating a better country for citizens to prosper in is something that is in everyone's interest. And that's what I feel like America's lost sight of. All right. Well, I, speaking of the, the greater good and the common good, I have a plumber who is coming. Uh, so I'm going to need to... <laughs> Sign off here in order to take care of that. But uh, Spencer Wells, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it was a, it was a good conversation. Good luck, guys. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.